Um, but so that's kind of a springboard into the the last thing I want to talk about tonight, um, which is this idea of concept creep. You know, I, I've been tw- as the podcast goes on and it's kind of evolving, and I'm thinking about the formatting of it. There are the topics that we're going to talk about most weeks, or these recurring themes. I'm thinking about that as like briefings. These are the things I kind of want to just get through. We'll, we'll brief you on the de- the newest update on this thing, and then I want to get to the the meat of it. You know, if you if you're old enough, you remember the the local news. You know, Channel Nine news at news at nine. You know, and they would on the commercials in between like home improvement and stuff would be, you know, tonight at nine this top story, and then they'd talk about all this other stuff, and then there'd be their top lead story that they dig into. And I kind of like that idea of having stuff, you know, there might be some recurring things that we'll give updates on, but then having like something I really want to dig into. And so I'm thinking about this idea of having briefings and then this main bit that I do. And and the idea that I get from this, you can give me some feedback on it, um, is in 2011, HBO did this really great comedy special. It wasn't really a comedy special, but it was a, a broadcast where it was Ricky Gervais Louis C.K., Chris Rock, and Jerry Seinfeld sitting down and just talking about comedy. It was called Talking Funny. It's on YouTube. You can find it. I think I put a link in the sources um, for it so you can watch it. It's, it's totally, totally worth watching if you like comedy. But there's this one point where they're talking about the way they construct their jokes and their acts. And Louis C.K. is kind of referencing him and Jerry Seinfeld and all of them. He says, you know, kind of us, whenever we come up with a bit, you know, we'll take a topic. You know, maybe it's a... a, a soap product or something you know you put it on the table and then you poke at it and you prod it and you hit it with a hammer and you just get it from every angle until there's nothing left in order to you know really look at it and find the humor in it and just make sure you understand it really well and Jerry Seinfeld kind of piggybacks off that he says yeah you know we just look at things and we go you know there's something there that's worth looking at and kind of lingering on and so I was thinking about that first of all the way that Louis C.K. was describing their their construction of bits, you know, a bit is, you know, just an act, you know, in a comedy special. Uh, the way they construct bits seems to have more uh, truth-seeking and journalistic integrity than the way the mainstream media covers some stuff. You know, for reference, look at the Iran stuff recently or um, any, I guess, even the impeachment um, but I, I like that idea of taking something, you know, having these briefings we get through and then having like a bit where we take an idea, put it on the table and let's poke at it and get at it to really see what's there. Um, so that's kind of the way I want to format it maybe going forward. You can give me some feedback on that, but that's what I want to do for the time being. Um, and I've done that in the past where I've had stuff, you know, here's the thing, oh, let's talk about the NRA or let's talk about, you know, Iran or let's talk about homelessness in California or something like that. Um, but I kind of like the idea of making that the official format. So you can give me some feedback in the comments on that. Tell me what you think. I'm not totally sold on the name of like having briefings and having the bit, but, uh, the fact that we have to have a sense of humor and everything is comedy now, maybe it makes sense to relate some in-depth look at something from a factual basis, you know, comparing that to a comedy bit as well. Uh, maybe that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Tell me what you think. But anyway, but the bit that I want to get to tonight, the thing I want to look at is this idea of concept creep and it ties into something I've talked about in the past, which is that strategic silence, this uh, actual legitimate, this isn't, you know, not conspiratorial, but where there is a legitimate framework for journalistic integrity and this new push for uh, critical internet studies, that's, that what it is is a framework for the justification of censorship. 
and media bias. I mean, just period. That is stated goals. That's not my opinion. That is stated goals within it. And there's this thing called concept creep that I think kind of feeds into that. So I want to look at concept creep and this kind of linguistic gymnastics that feeds that strategic silence and some of that media bias, you know, and what does that look like in this age of, you know, I call this far left orthodoxy or flow, you know, that, that kind of that AOC, Bernie Sanders wing, um, of the Democratic Party and people on the left. Uh, but I want to look at it a little bit at first from a historical perspective. So there's, I, I've maybe talked about this before, but there are a few books that just rocked my world, like reading uh, Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. I, was, I think two summers ago, and really reading that book is probably one of the main things that put me on the trajectory that I'm on now in terms of the things I talk about, things I think about doing this podcast um, and cause it really got me thinking about cultural trends, you know, Hayek wrote for reference, he wrote this book. It was during world war two. He was in great Britain. He wrote it between 1940 and 1943, which is before D-Day. This is when great Britain's getting just hammered air raids shelled by Germany. You know, basically who was going to win the war was very much up in the air at that point in time. And Hayek was looking around and he had seen socialism he, he observed, he watched it creep into Germany. He saw it to a degree in the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union was pretty closed off, so he doesn't talk about it as much in the original draft of the book. He goes back in a revised version, I think in the 70s, and he talks more about the Soviet Union. But he talked about socialism. He saw what happened, and he says, these ideas are now gaining traction here in the UK and to an, a lesser extent in the United States. And so he just writes about what happened in Germany, what happened in the Soviet Union, and why he's like, we're at war with this right now. How is this gaining traction? And so he lays out one of the best arguments against socialism, just based on his observations at the time of, yeah, this is the, this is the inevitable results here. And he's very candid about how, yeah, this is a lot of this has to do, or a lot of this succeeds and gains popularity on the back of well-intentioned people on the back of people who are who buy into the stated goals of it without understanding the outcomes and reality of it. Um, so I want to read an excerpt from The Road to Serfdom from the end of the book. Uh, it's a chapter called The End of Truth where he talks about the hijacking of language and how that's used by totalitarian government. Now he references totalitarianism and at one point government but it was a movement before it was the government. The National Socialists were a movement in Germany before they were the Nazi party that was in control of the government under Hitler. Same when the Soviet Union, there was the revolution, the communist revolution uh, that took over the Soviet Union before it became the government. It was a movement. Uh, it was an ideological movement. So here's what he, he talks about um, in this chapter, chapter 11, that the, the end of truth. Quote, the most effective way of making people accept the validity of the values they are to serve is to persuade them that they are really the same as those which they, or at least the best among them, have always held, but which were not properly understood or recognized before. The people are made to transfer their allegiance from the old gods to the new, under the pretense that the new gods really are what their sound instinct had always told them, but before they had only dimly seen. And the most efficient technique to this end is to use 
old words but change their meaning. Few traits of totalitarian regimes are at the same time so confusing to the superficial observer and yet so characteristic of the whole intellectual climate as the complete perversion of language, the change of the meaning of words by which the ideals of the new regime are expressed. So what Hayek is saying there is, look, one of the ways that we can grant validity to our new movement, we're not, we're not going to inject new ideas into it. We're just going to take words and change the meanings and tell people, look, you've always believed in this. You believe in equality, right? Well, yeah, so then we believe the same thing. But I just want to give you a better understanding of what that really means. So they hijack the language and get people to agree to things that they might not realize they're agreeing to. And he says, look, it perverts the whole language. It changes the meanings, but it changes the meanings of words in a way that forwards the ideals of the, of the movement itself. And he goes on to discuss how words like freedom and liberty were spoiled by this because the National Socialists were talking about how we're very much for freedom, we're very much for liberty, and then afterwards it turns out, yeah, what they're talking about was the freedom and liberty of the collective, not of the individual. Um, but then he continues on, quote, freedom or liberty are by no means the only words whose meanings have, have been changed into their opposite to make them serve as instruments of totalitarian propaganda. Uh, you know, quick pause there. I think about Bernie Sanders. I watched an interview with him yesterday. He's talking about democratic socialism. This is a pretty low hanging fruit criticism of Bernie Sanders, but I think it's worth mentioning here, you know, words changing into the opposite meaning. You know, the interviewer was talking about him saying, well, you're a socialist. He's like democratic socialist. And it's like, yeah, North Korea is the democratic people's Republic of Korea. And I think Congo is a Democratic Republic of Congo, just because you put the word democratic in front of it doesn't mean it's democratic. You know, the fact that the the Democratic Socialists of America literally state, we believe in democracy as a means to an end, as in, yeah, we're very for voting as long as it's voting to give us power. And then we might change our views on that. They're pretty upfront about it. But that's one of the things he's talking about here. It says, we have already seen how the same, so that same, the same changing the meaning of words, how the same happens to justice and law or right and equality. The list could be extended until it includes almost all moral and political terms in general use. If one has not experienced this process, it's difficult to appreciate the magnitude of this change of the meaning of words, the confusion it causes, and the barriers to any rational discussion which it creates. The confusion becomes worse because the change in the meaning of words describing political ideals is not a single event, but a continuous process, a technique employed, consciously or unconsciously, to direct the people. So he's saying this meaning of words is a slow process, but it slowly directs people's ideas or people's values, or at least maybe subconsciously, in the direction that the movement wants them to go. Gradually, as this process continues, the whole language becomes despoiled, and words become empty shells, deprived of any definite meaning, as capable of denoting one thing as its opposite. It's not difficult to deprive the great majority of independent thought, but the minority who will retain an inclination to criticize must also be silenced. Strategic silence. We have already seen why coercion cannot be confined to the acceptance of the ethical code underlying the plan 
according to which all society, all societal activity is directed. Since many parts of this code will never be explicitly stated, and since many parts of the guiding scale of values will exist only implicitly in the plan, the plan itself, in every detail, in fact, every act of government, or before it becomes government, every act of the movement, must become sacrosanct and exempt from criticism. So what he's saying there is, there's going to be a, it's not hard to convince the majority of people to, to make them not think independently, but there's going to be a minority of people who still need to be silenced because of their criticisms. And he says the reason for that is, is that there's going to be a lot of parts of this plan that aren't going to be explicitly stated, but are implicitly baked into it. So here would be a contemporary example of that. So whenever, you know, again, just because of the, the parallels, uh, whenever Bernie Sanders gets up there and talks about Medicare for all or Elizabeth Warren about getting rid of private health insurance or Medicare for all or healthcare as a human right, that's an explicitly stated goal. Implicitly in that is the enormous expansion of federal bureaucracy that would be required to implement that. I mean, it would. It would be it would be enormous. The complications that would create in dealing with hospitals. What would happen to all the private insurance companies? What would happen to the development of drugs and new medical treatments? And, and there are all these other government entities that would have to spring up as a result of that. So people here explicitly stated Medicare for all or healthcare as a human right or whatever. There are implicit things that will have to happen. And so Hayek is saying if someone criticizes or talks about the implicit things that will have to happen, they have to be silenced too because we can't have that happening. Um, we have to get everyone on board with with things, and that includes the implicit implications of what's going to happen here. And so when he says every act um, has to become, or every act of the movement has to become sacrosanct, that's what we already see now. AOC is incredibly adept at speaking the language of morality for the goals that she has and for her movement, and so it becomes sacrosanct. If you if you can't argue policy in terms of its effectiveness then just take the, stake out your position on the moral high ground and say, yeah, this is the right thing to do. You know, there's this episode of Rick and Morty that's really good that addresses this where there's, it's kind of a spoof on the Avengers and they're saying, and it addresses, you know, they, at one point, whenever this group, I forgot what they were called, uh, they weren't the Avengers, but when they got together, um, they assembled without Rick and Morty and they blew up an entire planet to take out this bad guy named World Ender and they justify it. Well, saying, we're the good guys, and, and he was the bad guy, so we can do that. And the point is, is that it, once you label yourself the good guys, you the ends always justify the means. And that's what Hayek's about to get to here. But it also makes you, it makes your movement sacrosanct from criticism, because you're the good guys. So who are you to say, any, who are you to criticize? You're criticizing what's morally right. That's what AOC says. She's incredibly skilled at making that argument. Uh, Hayek continues, if the people are to support the common effort without hesitation, they must be convinced that not only the end aimed at, but also the means chosen are the right ones. The official creed to which adherence must be enforced will therefore comprise all the views about facts on which the plan is based. So we have to, everything has to be based on the singular goal. So maybe we could say fighting climate change, for example, or a Green New Deal, uh, or, you know, whatever. Limit, eliminating equality, and we're going to base everything, it can't be criticized, it's going to be sacrosanct, so we're going to use this moral uh, vernacular, 
And it's going to get people to agree to the means and not just the ends, because they have to agree to the means if they're going to agree to the ends here. He ends this section by saying, Public criticism or even expressions of doubt must be suppressed. Facts and theories must thus become no less the object of an official doctrine than views about values. And the whole apparatus for spreading knowledge, the schools and the press, wireless and cinema, will be used exclusively to spread those views which, whether true or false, will strengthen the belief in the rightness of the decision taken by the authority. And all information that might cause doubt or hesitation will be withheld. So he's saying, in order to do this, so there's a couple things that are going to happen. First, is we're going to despoil the language. That's what he says. We're going to make words mean things that they didn't used to mean. We're going to change the definitions and tell people, well, you've always believed this. This is what this word really means. You believe in equality, right? Well, here's what that means. I mean, that's an example he uses here. He saw that happen in Germany, saw that happen in the Soviet Union. And he says, so we're going to change these words. It's going to be a gradual process. And one of the ways that we're going to disseminate this new lexicon, or at least the definitions in this new lexicon, are going to be through the means of, quote, spreading knowledge, the apparatus for spreading knowledge. That includes the schools, the press, wireless, I assume he means radio there, and cinema. You know, it's, it's uncontestable that Hollywood holds a, left, a left-leaning viewpoint. I mean, it's, it's overt. I'm not saying that as a moral judgment. It's just true. So that would be one of those apparatus for spreading knowledge that disseminates some of that vernacular that we see today. Um, again, people like Stephen Colbert going on there and talking about how brave and courageous uh, Adam Schiff is. CNN, NPR, all this other stuff. We're going to get into some of the specifics here in a little bit. But it, it's not untrue to say that the apparatus today for spreading knowledge, including schools and the press and academia, Hayek goes on to talk about it here later, how he observed it in academia at the time, how right now it, it is controlled primarily by the left. That's not, you might say, yes, that's fine. That's a good thing. That's fine. Um, but, it, but it is empirically true. That, that that's there. There's a reason why Fox News stands out. Um, you know, I, I, I look at Fox News the same way I look at MSNBC, to be honest. You know, they're both just two sides of the same coin. But the reason Fox News stands out is because it's like one of these things is not like the other, right? They're going to stand out because they're saying something different than literally everything else. Now, that could mean that they're the, the, the lone crazies out there, you know, and I can see where someone would get that impression. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Maybe in some cases, maybe somewhere in between. But the point is, is they stand out because it's so different than a lot of what the other mainstream media will do. Um, anyway, so there's a lot of comparisons. There's a lot of ways we can take Hayek's uh, words here. Honestly, I'd like to spend more time digging into this book with you guys because there's, I mean, really, I'm after I read it, there was some stuff where I was like, this is borderline prophetic in some of the stuff that he writes about. I mean, obviously, I don't mean that literally, but it's just really eerily similar. Um, you know, for example, when he talks about the takeover of academia, of schools and academia, he, later on in this chapter, he discusses how literally the idea was put forth that mathematics is a tool of bourgeois prejudices. Well, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat is what Marx talked about. You know, the bourgeoisie was the the wealthy, the privileged, and the bourgeois, and the proletariat was the working class, the oppressed. And Hayek says, yeah, there are people saying math is a tool of bourgeois prejudices. And, you know, that's something that you hear that's like math. What are you talking about? It's just math. And 
very recently, I think it was maybe within the last year, the Seattle Public School District puts out this framework for all of its K through 12 education. And whenever they talked about the math curriculum, they one of the things they wanted students to learn about was, quote, how math has been used and continues to be used to oppress and marginalize people and communities of color. It's like, no, I'm not kidding. You know, that sounds a lot like bourgeois prejudices. You know, it's the same words, you know, same song, different verse, you know, in Seattle public schools as, you know, Marxists back in the 30s and 40s saying that math was bourgeois prejudices. It's just happening in Seattle. Now it's math is being used to oppress and marginalize people of color. Um, So nothing new under the sun there, but that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is the contemporary kind of expression of what Hayek is describing here in terms of the takeover of language. Uh, and that's what this concept creep is. I was first introduced to this idea in The Coddling of the American Mind. I, I've talked about that before. It was written by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Highly recommend it. Um, and it's about academia and this kind of, the way that our, not just academia, but this new generation, Gen Z, uh, mostly is being really screwed up by a lot of the practices that we're putting into place uh, that are that we're seeing in a manifest on college campuses, but it's really through K through 12 and some new stuff in parenting. But anyway, they talk about concept creep, um, and it's it's kind of a another way of thinking about it. It's another expression, a little bit of what Hayek is describing here of the way that language has been distorted. And whenever Haidt and Lukianoff reference it, they talk about this paper that was written by, um, I think his name is Nick Haslam, yeah, Nick Haslam, who is a professor of psychology in Australia, who wrote this paper in 2016, called Concept Creep, Psychology's Expanding Concepts of Harm and Pathology. And here's, I'm going to tell you the abstract, I'm going to read you the abstract from Haslam's paper. I'm going to put a link to the full paper, um, if you can, if you want to read it, it's super interesting. But this is the abstract. Quote, many of psychology's concepts have undergone semantic shifts in recent years. These conceptual changes follow a consistent trend. Concepts that refer... Well, I lost my place. Okay. Concepts that refer to the negative aspects of human experience and behavior have expanded their meanings so that they now encompass a much broader range of phenomena than before. This expansion takes horizontal and vertical forms. Concepts extend outward to capture qualitatively new phenomena and downward to capture quantitatively less extreme phenomena. The concepts of abuse, bullying, trauma, mental disorder, addiction, and prejudice are examined to illustrate these historical changes. In each case, the concept's boundary has stretched and its meaning has dilated. A variety of explanations for this pattern of concept creep are considered and its implications are explored. I contend that the expansion primarily reflects an ever-increasing sensitivity to harm, reflecting a liberal moral agenda. Its implications are ambivalent, however. Although conceptual change is inevitable and often well-motivated, concept creep runs the risk of pathologizing everyday experience and encouraging a sense of virtuous but impotent victimhood. So what Haslam is saying here is there are ideas like bullying, trauma, uh, mental illness, prejudice, etc., that the definition of it has been expanded outward and downward. 
And so expanding it outward means it's including qualitatively new things. So we're saying, okay, there are other things that probably meet this criteria that we haven't looked at as this before, but probably are this. And at the same time, we're going to lower the standard uh, or the, you know, the burden, the standard to meet this criteria. So we're saying there, there are more things that fall into this category and we're going to water down the definition of this category downward so that it includes less severe forms of this. And, you know, Haslam says, you know, he says, I think this is part of a liberal moral agenda, but he says he thinks it's ambivalent, um, that it's well-intentioned. And honestly, I agree with that in part. I think there are people who probably do feel that way, uh, but I think that there's other parts that are a little bit more nefarious in the way that they do that. Uh, now, one thing I will say is that I agree with his assessment that this is inevitable and is beneficial at times. You know, I talked about this before. Um, there's a, I did a podcast, I think this last fall, about this really, I think it was journalistic malfeasance of the highest order of this article that NPR ran about this study of uh, sexual assault and rape. And the way they categorized it, I think is a textbook definition of concept creep, but one thing they did do is they took things like um, a consensual sex or a sexual activity, but that was due to extreme pressure put on one partner to the other. And they said this should be in the category of the sexual assault. Now, they put it in the category of rape, uh, which I think was wrong. That's, that is textbook concept creep. But the good part of it was they, they took something that we probably haven't talked about before, or talked about enough as a society, brought it out of the darkness into the light and said, let's talk about this. This needs to be stigmatized. Pressuring someone into doing something they're uncomfortable with probably does fall into the category of sexual assault, sexual harassment, some type of sexual abuse. So we should talk about that. But the concept creep was saying it's the same as this forced traumatic sexual rape, even though it's a consensual act. So the point that I'm getting at, I'm not trying to rehash that, is there are ways in which it can be done that's good in terms of let's talk about something. That's that qualitative encompassing. But whenever you push the definition down to include, the, to water it down to where it makes two things that aren't the same and basically labels them as the same, then you get into some problems. So there's a 2016 Atlantic article that was kind of a follow-up to Haslam's paper um, that I want to talk a little bit about. They address some of the criticisms here. And then I want to look at some examples of concept creep and how we can see that today and why we should care. Um, so the, the Atlantic article goes like this, and I'm going to put a link to this also. They're, they're a little bit friendlier to it than I, I am um, because the, the concept includes a lot of things, right? So things like bullying or what Haidt and Lukianoff talk about in The Coddling of the American Mind, they're saying we are, they, they specifically talk about trauma in that book, and they're saying, look, we're, that's what Haslam says, we're pathologizing everyday things that, you know, probably help people develop, develop some of that, you know, anti-fragility as Nassim Taleb talks about, and by saying that that's trauma and we're over-protecting kids, we're setting them up for failure. That's kind of the thesis of Haidt and Lukianoff's book. But there are other ways in which I see this playing out that that's where I say it falls into more of the nefarious stuff. Some of that um, that stuff that Haidt and Lukianoff talk about, I think it does fall into the category of well-intentioned um, and ambivalent, um, even if the outcomes are bad. Uh, but there's this other part, and this is the part I want to focus on, where it p definitely plays into some of that stuff that Hayek is talking about here that's a little bit more nefariously motivated, or at least seems to be that. I, I don't see any evidence that it's not that. I'm open to it, though. 
So this is from the Atlantic article, quote, when social justice progressives on college campuses call for peers to be punished socially or administratively for, quote, microaggressions, like saying the word football instead of soccer, or donning a tiny sombrero at a tequila party, or chalking Trump 2016 on a sidewalk, I wonder if part of what's going on is that the punishment seekers are saying, that's prejudiced, that's racist, and meaning, that's racist, the that or that's racist the category that we all agree should be maximally stigmatized so he's saying whenever someone says wearing a sombrero at a tequila party and they're saying that's racist they're using the word racist in the same way as you might call someone doing like a black-faced vaudeville bit in the 20s racist like that's that is racist but they're saying you're using this word to describe something that we don't necessarily all agree on the definition uh, anyway, he goes on, he says, whereas the critics reply, no, that isn't racist or you're wrong, meaning not that the behavior issue is or isn't coherently objectionable in a way that's worth interrogating, but that right or wrong, that behavior clearly doesn't fall into the category of things that should, almost all of us have agreed, be maximally stigmatized. In this telling, concept creep exacerbates failures to communicate. When a concept is stretched to include milder, subtler, or less extreme phenomena than those to which they referred to at an earlier time, any earlier judgment or consensus about how to best respond to that concept no longer applies. So I'll pause there. What he's saying is that whenever you take a word that we used to all agree on what it meant, like racist or violence, that's one that's really been um, twisted and perverted, that whenever you take that word and you distort it, and you build in, you know, the new gods, like what Hayek talks about, into it, then what what that makes is where we can no longer agree on how to deal with the phenomena that you're describing, because you're using a word that we don't agree with the de on the definitions. So we can't agree on how to assess things as a result. The author goes on, why are so many concepts creeping in the same direction? This is a good question. Concept creep is inevitable and vital if society is to make good use of new information. But why has the direction of concept creep across so many different concepts trended towards greater sensitivity to harm as opposed to lesser sensitivity? Now, that's a good question. Now, he's saying, look, the, whenever a concept creeps, it never becomes something that we become, you know, more, you know, kind of dismissive of. In other words, you know, con concept creep, as we're observing it, always you know, spreads it out to make it where we're more sensitive to something, to where something is more harmful than we had previously considered. And they go on, they give a few explanations. They give Haslam's explanations. They, the author gives his own, and they quote Jonathan Haidt's explanation as well. And I, I, I like this one the best. Um, so I'm going to selectively read it to you. But you can read the article to read the other ones if you want. Haidt says, quote, if an increasingly left-leaning academy is staffed by people who are increasingly hostile to conservatives, then we can expect that their concepts will shift via motivated scholarship in ways that will help them and their allies, university administrators, to prosecute and condemn conservatives, he writes. We can expect academic concepts to creep in ways that increase the number of victims and the damages those victims suffer, and in many ways that make it even harder for anyone to defend themselves against ugly moral charges. Such politically motivated scholarship may sometimes originate in humanities departments rather than in psychology, but it draws heavily on psychological concepts and research, and it feeds back into the six streams of creeping psychology research that Haslam reviewed. 
and they conclude with one of Haslam's own warnings about the potential damages of concept creep. Haslam says, quote, by increasing the range of people who are defined as moral patients, which he means people worthy of moral concern based on their perceived capacity to suffer and be harmed, it risks reducing the range of people who see themselves as capable of moral agency. In other words, by making more victims, you're removing the amount of people that can say, I have agency, I'm in control, as opposed to, I'm just a victim of my circumstances. And then Haslam goes on to say, there's a tendency for more and more people to see themselves as victims who are defined by their suffering, vulnerability, and innocence. The flip side of this expanding sense of victimhood would be a typecast assortment of moral villains, abusers, bullies, bigots, and traumatizers. So what Haslam is saying is that we're creating more people who could fall into this victim category. That's intersectionality for you right there. We're creating more victims, and by doing that, we're creating, we're expanding out to where there's basically two categories. There's the oppressors, the, you know, the bourgeoisie, who are the, there's, they're the people who are creating these victims, who are oppressing these victims. Those are the, the bullies and the people, the bigots and all this other stuff. And then we're expanding out the category of people who have been oppressed, who are the victims of this. And so it, it's, it's creating this unsustainable, toxic social dynamic. Um, and so I want to look at a few instances of concept creep here, um, at least in, in our current vernacular, in the mainstream way that we talk about things now. Um, I don't want to discuss these mer- the individual merits of these particular issues. We can at a later point in time, but I just want to look at how have we shifted just the purely the vernacular of how we talk about some issues to kind of give some contemporary examples of what Hayek observes uh, and whenever he was writing Road to Serfdom and what Haidt and Lukianov talk about when they reference Haslam's research of concept creep in their book, uh, Calling the American Mind. So just want to talk just purely from a linguistic standpoint. Here's a couple examples and why they matter. And here are some ways in which this is being played out in a way that's actually harmful. So here's one example, right? Referencing that, uh, when I was talking about that Oprah's Book Club book, right? Illegal immigrant becomes undocumented immigrant, becomes migrant. So it's shifted now to where if someone's coming to the United States illegally, well, they're now a migrant. So any negative connotation has been removed. Illegal, not legal. Undocumented, not documented. Now it's just a migrant. You're just here to work. It's just a positive thing. It's talking about the same thing. You know, I mean, illegal immigrant was, that was nothing that was even remotely controversial, there's Barack Obama, clips of him in 2008, 2010, talking about illegal immigrants and saying, look, this is something that we need to be concerned about. They don't get to jump to the front of the line, but now it's undocumented and then migrant. Um, you know, even right now, there, the BBC reported about how there's another migrant caravan that just bum-rushed uh, the Mexican army to cross a river into Mexico that's making its way towards the the United States. We'll probably talk about that more as the summer uh, approaches, spring approaches, whenever the weather becomes conducive for crossing the border into the United States. But it's, it's migrants coming. It's a migrant caravan. Um, recently, I think it's just yesterday, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, with the Trump administration, a 5-4 decision, that they could consider whether or not a person would be 
or was currently or would be dependent on the government for a substantial amount of benefits and whether or not to grant them permanent residency. And all of the articles covering this was about how this was, you know, about, you know, wanting to prop up wealthy uh, immigrants and prevent, you know, uh, not wealthy migrants from coming over. And so it's just a, a linguistic change. It's not really a change in definition. They're talking about someone who's here legally, at, at least especially with the BBC stuff and the way a lot of this is covered now in the mainstream, is it lumps it all into the same category. If you waited in line, if you put in your paperwork, if you took the classes, all that other stuff, you're now in the same category as someone who crossed illegally and, and, and it's a migrant. So the, the definitions have changed, or at least the way we're describing it has changed to be watered down. Um, here's another one. Here's a big one right now. Healthcare, right? Gender reassignment surgery becomes gender confirmation surgery becomes trans healthcare. There's a couple articles from NBC News here in the last week talking about how South Dakota and Florida have, are, uh, their state legislature is proposing laws that would, pre- that would prevent trans healthcare. It would suppress trans access to trans healthcare. What the laws do, at, le- at least uh, the specific ones they're talking about, they're making it illegal or proposing that it would be illegal to give minors hormone therapy and puberty blockers. So they're saying, look, we don't know anything about this. The science isn't in yet, and we don't think it's a responsible decision to give a six-year-old hormone therapy. You know, they, there's no way that that's a responsible decision. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. Um, I happen to be in the camp that I think that's it's child abuse, like literally, to do that. But they're saying that that's, that's denying trans health care. Um, and it's same, same way with abortion, right? So it was abortion rights and then pro-choice and then reproductive rights and then reproduct access to reproductive health care. And what that does, again, you can agree or disagree. You might hear that and go, yeah, I think that's fine. I, I think that those, both those things are right. I think giving six-year-olds puberty blockers and hormone treatment, that is health care. I think uh, being able to terminate a pregnancy up to the point of birth, like what New York uh, has recently passed, that that is healthcare. I, I don't want to argue those merits, but the point is, is it shifted from abortion to healthcare, from gender reassignment surgery or these types of hormone treatments to healthcare. And by doing that, they're putting something like giving a seven-year-old hormone treatment or terminating a pregnancy in the same category as like a life-saving surgery for someone who just got in a car wreck. You know, I was in a car wreck six years ago, something like that. You know, I broke several ribs. My lung was punctured. My spleen was punctured. I almost bled to death. They had to take my spleen out. I needed emergency health care at the time by putting, by calling it trans health care or a reproductive health care. They're putting an abortion or prescribing these drugs to a seven-year-old in the same category as my splenectomy that saved my life. And that's, that's on purpose. It's, it's incredibly uh, strategically smart for them to do that because what is one of the main things that are being talked about in the primaries right now? Well, universal health care. And health care is a human right. So we have things like the Hyde Amendment being debated where we should repeal the Hyde Amendment, which basically just says the federal government's not going to fund abortions. And now they're like, no, that's denying reproductive health care. And so whenever someone like Bernie Sanders says health care is a human right, What's Hayek say? Well, we're gonna we're just gonna change the definition. So healthcare, as a lot of people hear it, they're like, oh, healthcare, yeah, that's I'm gonna go to the doctor. You know, I'm not feeling very good. I need to go get some antibiotics. 
they're saying, yeah, healthcare is a human right. Well, baked into that is abortion, federally funded, and federally funded it's hormone therapies for kids and stuff that's science is not in on this at all. It's dubious at best, but they're saying, well, that's healthcare. That's, you know, and so they change that. You know, we don't need to harp on that, but, but you get what I'm saying. These, those are just two examples of how things have changed. What about ideas such as prejudice, right? That's one of the things that Haslam talks about, prejudice, racism, bigotry, all those things. We're going to expand the definition out to include other things. And then down, we're going to lower the necessary um, burden to meet the to meet that definition. So here's from YouTube's uh, brand new hate speech policy, ready to go for 2020. Uh, quote, hate speech is not allowed on YouTube. We remove content promoting promoting violence or hatred against individuals or groups based on any of the following attributes, age, caste, disability, ethnicity, gender identity and expression, nationality, race, immigration status, religion, sex slash gender, sexual orientation, victims of major violent event and their kin, veteran status. Now, YouTube is owned by Google and they their search algorithms follow the same, or their search algorithms follow that same criteria and guidelines. And they're a private company, they can do what they want. The problem is, is that they say they're not going to uh, support anything that promotes hate. Well, hate is defined by who? Who gets to define that? They don't define it there. It's completely subjective, and that's the problem. That's one of the things that Hayek talks about in other places in the book, and Haidt Lukianoff talk about that. Peter Boghossian and James Lindsay have talked about that. these Trojan horse ideas, like equality, equity, diversity, inclusion, things like that. They're Trojan horse concepts. People say, yes, I'm for equality. Well, it's like, okay, let me tell you what you're actually signing up for with that. Um, whenever you say that, because it's used by bad bad actors to promote agendas that people don't realize they're signing up for. Um, so, but back to Google, they don't say what constitutes a promotion of hate. So, you know, they talk about um, nationality. So, what if a person said, "No country can sustain unlimited uh, immigration." if they also are simultaneously running mathematically unsustainable uh, government welfare programs. It's just not sustainable. Would that be hateful? Would that be something that was hateful towards immigrants or something like that? Um, I mean, maybe to some people would consider that. Now, I, I think that's, that's a mathematically, factually true statement. Angela Merkel literally closed Germany's borders a couple years ago because they were, they were going to collapse in terms of just their government programs generally because they brought in so many Syrians that they, they literally could not sustain the programs that they had. And they, they actually shut the door. Like, we cannot bring any more people in until we get this under control. Sweden experienced a similar thing where because they have these really big government programs. You have unlimited immigration into the country. It's just not mathematically sustainable. But if you were to say that, is that being hateful against a, a person's immigration status. If you say a person who crosses a border that and it's illegal to cross that border, they do so in a way that without the permission of the, the government that they're crossing into, that they've broken a law and they're a criminal. Is that, is that promoting hate? Well, there are people who would say that. There are people who would say that. What about this? What if you say a culture that oppresses women and oppresses minority religions and kills gay people is an inferior culture to those that don't. Is that is that promoting hate? Now again, I, 
I would like for someone to make the case that a culture that kills gay people is as good as cultures that don't kill gay people. Um, I, I don't know how you make that case, but there are people who would say that that's hateful. Sam Harris gets in trouble for saying things like that. It's like, that's just factually true, but YouTube's hate speech criteria is so ill-defined that they can twist it to mean whatever they want. You know, I, my YouTube channel small enough that it's not going to matter that I said that, but maybe they could still totally delete my channel, delete all my videos for saying that. It's in their new guidelines um, because it's it's so poorly defined. And so that's all of that comes into play with big tech. Hayek is talking about there these, he calls it, what do you say, the apparatus for distributing information and knowledge, right? The internet is part of that. That's YouTube's hate speech policy. Twitter has done the same thing. There are mainstream prominent feminists that have been banned from Twitter for saying men aren't women. Like literally that's it. Men aren't women. And who've gotten banned for that. That's crazy. That's great. Now again, Twitter is a private company. They can do what they want, but they're using that concept creep, right? And that framework of the, the new gods, the new words, or the new meanings being baked into old meanings so that people sign up for stuff without realizing what they're signing up for. So here's here's why we should care. Here are the effects of that. Here's two brief stories I want to talk about, and then we'll close it out. Here's one from the BBC. Quote, Sheffield students paid to tackle racist language on campus. I don't like racist language. Do you like racist language? I don't, I don't like that. I don't want racist language being spoken anywhere. Now, I'm a free speech absolutist, so I believe in people's right to say that. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be consequences, like they lose their job and stuff like that. But I don't want racist language spoken. You probably don't either. So you hear like, oh man, students are paid to tackle racist language. Good for them. A university is to hire 20 of its own students to challenge language on campus that could be that could be seen as racist. Well, hold on. Now it's okay. The University of Sheffield is to pay students to tackle so-called microaggressions. Now we're it's down, right? Tackle racist language. Language that could be seen as racist. Now we're to those microaggressions. That's what Haslam talks about with concept creep. Height and Lukianov talk about. Um, which it describes as subtle but offensive comments. They will be trained to lead healthy conversations about preventing racism on campus and in student accommodation. So that's in the dorms. Vice Chancellor Cohen Lambert said the initiative wanted to, quote, change the way people think about racism. The students will be paid $9.34 an hour as race equality champions. Wow, that's not dystopian at all. Working between two and nine hours per week to tackle microaggressions in the university. So they are explicitly out there to tackle. So it was racist language, language that could be, could be seen as that. And then these microaggressions, and this is totally subjective. They are described as comments or actions which might be unintentional, but which can cause offense to a minority group. Rather than being about controlling people's speech, the university says it's opening up a conversation. It says that the equality roles are being created in response to demand from students, training them how to, quote, help their peers understand racism and its impact. So this university is literally hiring plainclothes thought police to go out there and police their peers' language on campus. Of course, I can see no way in which this could go wrong, right? Um, and But what, it, what are the criteria they're using? Well, that's these perceived, unintentional, subjective, microaggressions, that's that concept creep, we flatten the definition out to where it can include anything, like what, what was the example they gave? Saying football instead of soccer 
or wearing a sombrero, well, that's racist. Well, according to who, who gets to define that? We now have people who are being paid in the UK to go out and police that kind of thing. But it's not about, it's not about shutting down language. It's about conversations. Okay, well, that's from the, that's from the UK. Now, that should be scary, um, but that's also, at the same time, not surprising with all the stuff that we've seen on college campuses. That's one of the things that prompted Luke Yonoff and Haidt to write that book in the first place. But here's one from the United States. This is more about voting and, um, and a little bit scary, I think, actually. So this is from NBC News. Uh, it was written, I think, just last week, maybe a week and a half ago. Noah Berlatsky writes, quote, If the Trump era has taught us anything, it's that large numbers of white people in the United States are motivated, at least in part, by racism in the voting booth. Donald Trump ran an openly racist campaign for president, calling Mexicans rapists and criminals, regularly retweeting white supremacists, and at least initially balking at repudiating former Ku Klux Klan member David Duke. Trump made it clear that his campaign that Make America Great Again meant, make, meant that America was greater when white people's power was more sweeping and more secure. White voters approved of that message by a whopping 58 to 37 percent. Some politicians deny the evidence, no doubt, because they don't want to alienate white voters, including prejudiced ones. Other commentators try to parse out whether Trump's racism will be a winning strategy in 2020. Terry Smith, a visiting professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law, offers a different response in his new book, White Lash, Unmasking White Grievance at the Ballot Box. Oh boy, I bet that's a delight. Rather than excuse racist voters or try to figure out how to live with their choice, he argues that racist voting is not just immoral, but illegal. The government, Smith says, has the ability and responsibility to address it. The article concludes, It's difficult to address injustice, however, if you're unwilling to say injustice exists. So we have got a lot of subjective stuff going on here. Well, I'll, I'll just finish this up and we'll talk about it. Politicians and pundits, Republicans and Democrats alike, have been unwilling to reprimand voters or hold them accountable, but voters are not well-intentioned innocents who are helplessly manipulated by malevolent leaders. They make important decisions as constitutional actors, for which they have moral responsibility. Racist voting isn't an accident. It's a choice that may violate the principles of our Constitution and our legal system. We should say so, and when we should, and then we should find ways to reduce the harm it causes. So we've got a lot of subjectivity here, right? So they're motivated by racism. Okay, well, according to you, obviously if it was such an openly racist campaign by everyone's traditional definition, again, that's that concept creep, like, wait, this isn't what we've talked about in terms of racism, then he wouldn't have won. If he was out there talking about how actually inferior other races were, then that would be a racist campaign, and that dude's not going to win. Um, but this author is saying, well, by my own standards, by my own definition of these words, this was an openly racist campaign, and it's illegal, and it's illegal, and it's difficult to address injustice, again, as defined by who, if you're unwilling to say injustice exists. So that's that bait and switch. Well, are you unwilling to say injustice exists? No, I think injustice exists. Of course it does. Okay, but I'm talking about my definition of injustice. Now that you've agreed that that exists, or you've agreed racism exists, then you're agreeing to my definition. That's where that confusion arises. That's that despoiling of language as a whole, as Hayek talks about. But here's the problem. So here's, we in the UK, we have an example of how the concept creep expands out the ideas of racism and prejudice to mean whatever someone wants it to mean to go out and police the language of their fellow students. They're getting, people getting paid to do that. I did the math on average for those students. If, you're, if it's the mean amount of hours, it's like 110 hours a week 
these guys are going to be out there thought policing people in the dorms and on campus. That's terrifying. But using microaggressions, like the subjective definition. And then we have the same thing with uh, this Noah Berlatsky talking about what sounds like either criminalizing voters or removing their right to vote based on his definition of racism and saying they're motivated by racism according to his definition. Again, that's just twisting the words. So if you if you talk to someone and say, well, you don't like racism, do you? No, of course I don't. Okay, well, these people are motivated by racism. We need to do something about it. It's, and it's a bait and switch of what they're talking about. Again, there's a prominent feminist. Uh, Megan Murphy was recently banned from Twitter for saying men aren't women. And then that's, that's bigoted. That's that flattening out of these definitions. So again, strategic silence, which I talked about, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, maybe. Um, it might have been before that. But where there's this justification, you know, we're seeing, it's so obvious that the media is biased, right? Like it's coming out, it's becoming more and more obvious. You can agree with, you can like the bias, you can not like the bias. But the stuff with Bernie Sanders has to be waking people up to that. And there's a, and it's pretty soon, they aren't going to be able to say that they're, you know, unbiased truth tellers. They need a justification. That's what strategic silence is. That's that recall that is the justification of, well, we want to prevent hate speech. We're not going to report hate speech. We're not going to report divisive or inflammatory rhetoric. Well, as defined by who, right? It's the same thing here. They're using that concept creep to do that. Recall Hayek's words right here. Quote, again, the confusion becomes worse because the change in the meaning of words describing political ideals is not a single event, but a continuous process. A technique employed consciously or unconsciously to direct people to direct the people gradually as this process continues the whole language becomes despoiled and words become empty shells deprived of any definite meaning as capable of denoting one thing as its opposite so we have things like we have, you can get away with saying you're an anti-fascist while engaging in the most fascistic tactics currently being engaged in the United States, just period. Shutting down speech, violently protesting people, throwing chemicals on people while claiming to be an anti-fascist, right? Um, that's what he's talking about. Words are meaning the exact opposite. And he's saying this is a gradual process. So the more ubiquitous these definitions of racist or prejudiced or, you know, the new definition of oh, migrant or healthcare or whatever become, the more these Trojan horse ideas are going to be accepted. You know, Peter Boghossian and James Lindsay talk about this a lot, where they, they, again, those Trojan horse words, and they talk about equity and how equity is used, and people hear that and they think, oh, equality, right? That's what you're talking about. And so they, you know, agree, yeah, I like equity. And they don't realize what they're agreeing to, which is equality of outcome, forced equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity. Uh, anyway, we can go on and on about this, but the main takeaway is, as I've talked about that strategic silence and that call for the critical internet studies, that censorship on of on tech platforms, on Google, of Facebook, of there to be actual government entities, that's one of the things Elizabeth Warren has talked about, of censorship of Facebook, of how and AOC's criticized Facebook, Elizabeth Warren criticized Facebook, others have too, uh, for not fact-checking, right, using their preferred fact-checking mechanisms um, to, to fact-check statements they don't like. That is what this concept creep is what is underscoring a lot of that. So those new definitions, Hayek talking about this despoiling of the language, 
changing the definition of words. I mean, Hayek himself used this 1940s, early 1940s, words like equality and justice and right were being tainted to mean something different than what people had originally agreed to when they meant that. Haslam writes about that when it comes to concept creep. It's the same thing we're seeing now. And that despoiling of the language is being used to justify increased media bias and, and tech censorship. That's why we're seeing these tech platforms prop up. Bridget Patassi did an interview with Dave Rubin. She's the first one on his new platform, Locals. It's pretty cool. There's a, I mean, there's exciting things happening in tech as a result of this. But I think there's going to be some growing pains in the meantime as people are experiencing that, and especially in 2020. And the reason why I want to talk about that, and you know, we'll close it out here, is like I said, with all those articles written, like by New York Times comparing Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump, or David from the Atlantic saying Bernie can't win, the cards are on the table. The media is putting it out there. They do not want Bernie to win. They are very desperate to not let him win. And they're going to ride their bias as hard as possible. They're going to twist things as much as possible. They're going to treat Elizabeth Warren's statements about him like they're truth and just not acknowledge the fact that he says, no, that's not true, that he disputes it. They're going to do that across the board. They are doing that across the board. Um, in all of these arenas to suppress any ideas they don't want. We're seeing it with Bernie Sanders, but we've seen it with other stuff in the past, and we're going to continue to see it. That same desperation against Bernie is a desperation just to win generally with the ideas they want to win. And so it's going to be applied across the board to anyone that doesn't check that box. That's what Hayek writes about there when he says any, any type of even criticism or doubts even will have to be suppressed because they will, they will be necessarily suppressed because of the possibility of you know that spreading and people going, well, wait a second, what are the implications of some of these things? And so that's where that knowledge apparatus, which now includes Facebook, it includes Twitter, includes Google, includes YouTube, includes all these things. And so that's that new piece there. Um, that big tech thing that I think Hayek would have included in that apparatus had he been writing that book in, in you know, 2015 as opposed to 1940. Um, anyway, so just something to look at, uh, to look for, honestly, going forward, I would encourage you to think about whenever you hear stories about, you know, racism or prejudice or um, misogyny or oppression or any of these things, just think about the way language has changed. Again, I don't even necessarily want to say that that's changed in a way that is... I, I don't want to put a moral judgment on it because I want to engage with it as a phenomenon. I, I don't want to get into the weeds of whether or not you agree or disagree. If you think that trans healthcare is an appropriate term for giving seven-year-olds hormone blockers, okay, um, but you can't deny the fact that that has changed... And it's now, you know, the idea of healthcare is, is now including things that people didn't necessarily agree to or realize that um, they were agreeing to before. So I just encourage you to think about those things and think about, well, how have words changed? How have definitions changed? You know, microaggressions, you know, how we talked about diversity inclusion, inclusion you know, and Martin Luther King, you know, I read his I Have a Dream speech uh, on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And, you know, when he talks about ideas of equality, and, you know, in a future of peace and harmony uh, between blacks and whites and where people will judge by the, uh, the uh, content of their character, not the color of their skin. He's talking about equality in a way that that word isn't used now. It's a, the definition is different now. 
Um, so it's just something to look for and something to think about, especially going into 2020 as we're seeing the establishment getting more and more desperate to not have a repeat of 2016. And that includes on both sides. They don't want a repeat of 2016 with the Bernie wing. Um, that's why there's all these pieces coming out. And they don't want a repeat of 2016 with, the, with Donald Trump winning. So that's why there's all these pressures on big tech and this strategic silence. You know, we, we don't want to promote hate speech. Well, as defined by who, you know, I'll, I'll end it here. I, I saw a really great rebuttal. You know, someone was saying, um, yeah, okay, what, what, what are you so afraid of? Why are you so opposed to us legislating hate speech? And there was a comment there, I remember who it was, it might have been David French, I don't, I don't think so, but anyway, and they said, I'll tell you what, I'll let you outlaw hate speech if you let me define it, because that's, that's the problem, right? We're not going to agree on the definition, but if you let me define hate speech, then yeah, we can outlaw it, but we just don't all have the same definition of that, uh, and that's the problem, that's why I'm a free speech absolutist. Um, anyway, something to look forward to, or it's, uh, not forward to, something to look for uh, going forward. And if you have examples of, of that that I haven't mentioned or I haven't thought of, send it to me here. On the right or the left, I, I don't care. I, one, one thing I will say, I just thought of this, is I think that idea of like socialist, everything's a socialist thing. I think that, is, that is, has experienced some concept creep on the right where anything, any left policy is being described as socialist. And I think that that's a wrong, that, that's being concept creep. That's a, a despoiling of the language that I think that's not true. Um, and the right is making error, I think, in doing that. And the left does it with these other things. So I'm going to call that out on both sides. But if you think of some other examples, please let me know in the comments or whatever. Okay, so here's the giveaway. I'll give you the rules of the giveaway, and then we'll get out of here. So my wife came with this idea. It's an awesome idea. So here's how you enter. So there's going to be, you can have up to three entries, right? So the first one, uh, subscribe on YouTube and leave a comment saying that you subscribed, or if you're already subscribed, just leave a comment on this video when I upload it to YouTube. Um, so that will be one way to enter. The other one is to follow me on Twitter and retweet uh, the, so whenever I upload this to YouTube, then I'll put that, uh, I'll tweet it out. And if you follow me on Twitter, then, or, or you go follow me on Twitter and retweet my uh, tweet that has this video on it, that'll be another entry. The third one will be, if you're watching this on Facebook, is to share it on Facebook. And I and that's that way you can have up to three entries. Now, I'd love it if you did all three, especially the YouTube and the Twitter. Um, and, and to follow me on Spotify as well. If you put that in the comments and say, hey, I followed you on Spotify, um, then then I'll include that as a, as a fourth entry. So it's a $50 Amazon gift card and an Amazon Echo uh, dot... You know, if you want some spyware in your house, I'm, I'm really selling this thing. I know, really hard. But some people like it. You know, they're fine. I'm not a big fan. But um, my wife was like, you know, people are into that. Why aren't, you know, let's do that. I'm like, all right, that's fine. So do an Amazon gift card, $50 gift card, and uh, an Echo Dot. So the way I'll do it is just the, the first entry I'll pull will be the gift card, and the second one will be the Dot. And the third one will be my uh, my beloved popsicle stick collection i don't know i was trying to think of something stupid there um yeah so those are the two things we'll be giving away i will do that so this video is going to be uploaded and then i'll announce who the winner is on my next stream which will be next sunday afternoon i think uh before the super bowl so this will be the video that you'll be sharing and then just subscribe to the channel and all that other stuff um anyway so i appreciate you watching i think i went way longer than i planned on holy crap um, it's going to be fun at work tomorrow. Uh, appreciate you watching. If this type of thing you're into, 
Please like, share, subscribe. Um, follow me on Twitter. That's at MyMundaneMind. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, Return to Reason. Same with Spotify. Return to Reason on there. Uh, you know, I, I really try my best to give as unbiased or at least honest approach to things as I can. If you feel like I left anything out, if you feel like I was um, unreasonable or unfair or misrepresented anything, I'm always open to that criticism. I want to be constantly refining the way I present this stuff. So feel free to leave me a comment, shoot me a message, anything like that. Um, I'm always open to that feedback. So anyway, that said, I appreciate you watching. I hope you have a great week. It's going to be crazy. You know, I, I feel like I wish I had something better to fill my time other than this impeachment stuff leading up to the Super Bowl. Cause I'm just gonna, it's kind of hurry up and wait. Um, that and, you know, waking up and dealing with my daughter wanting to hang out. So anyway, that's okay. Actually, I'm okay with that. I think at the end of the day. So appreciate you watching. Hope you have a good week. I will see you next Sunday. Don't forget to, to do those four entries. If you want to get those super sweet prizes, Amazon gift card, and an Echo Dot spyware to record all your conversations and uh, then give you advertisements based on it. So, yay. Anyway, that's it. Have a good night. I will see you next time.